we are back. We're back in the thick of it. So we are back in the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at Revelation 13 today. And just as a reminder, a refresher, all right, what things, what principles have we established so far in interpreting the book of Revelation? All right, first, this is a symbolic book. Not because we want it to be symbolic, but because the book itself says it is symbolic. All right, so these are symbols that represent thing, other things, right? So we're not going to over-literalize the things. We're going to see uh, the symbols and then seek to understand what they mean. All right, second, we said that most of the symbols are from where? Old Testament. Old Testament, yeah, you all knew that. <laughs> it's wrong time to ask questions. Sorry, you, you were up late last night. All right, uh, all right so these are not new symbols. We don't just get to uh, invent whatever we think they are. Uh, they were found in the Old Testament and... The, the meanings are, are quite clear when we carry them over from the Old Testament. And finally, we already established that this book is for the whole church generation, right? This book is written for those uh, who exist from the time of Christ's resurrection all the way to his second coming, right? So it's not just for those people at the very beginning. It's not just for those people at the very end. It's for all the people during this period. And so we want to find direct interpretations and, and applications to ourselves, but in the wider context of the whole church. All right, we're not looking to, uh, to put names on the people and the symbols. We're looking for general principles that can be applied uh, throughout this church age. All right, so where are we in the book? We uh, have gone through some various sevens. So first we had the seven seals, we had the seven trumpets, and now we find ourselves in the seven signs. These are seven images of kind of the war that's going on uh, between God and Satan and his agents. And today we're looking at the two beasts, the two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. And what we're going to see is that these are agents of Satan, the dragon, and that they are counterfeits of Christ and the Holy Spirit as agents of evil. And they seek to destroy the church uh, with fear and with persecution, seeking, if possible, to draw away those who are chosen and those who are called. But there's encouragement in this, that they are mere counterfeits and there is no real power there. And that as we look past the counterfeits to the real deal, to the real God and all of his majesty and glory and power, we will be preserved until that final day. So, uh, an intense, tense welcome back to Revelation, but uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you that you've given it to us as a sobering a reminder of the the powers that be, and yet the powers that are in your hand. Father, we ask that we might have the wisdom that is called for, that we might have great discernment, that we might see the counterfeits, and Father, we might not fall prey uh, to the fear and to the oppression that they would, uh, they would place upon us. Father, we would look beyond them to see you and your glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, would we be captivated with your great beauty and power and glory? 
that we may see ourselves to the end, uh, see, see you in the end, and, and proclaim your faithfulness. Lord, would you help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we will begin with the first beast in chapter 13. All right, uh, I'll read it from here. Chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diathems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seems to have had a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming the name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. All right, so we have this picture. This picture of the beast rising up out of the water. And we have this almost like the Godzilla kind of picture, right? Emerging out of the sea. And the sea is, is not a, it's a, it's a symbolic place. In the scriptures, it's a place of chaos and death and evil. And so birth out of this place of chaos and death and evil comes this great beast. Now, why does it have seven heads and ten crowns on each of its horns and blasphemous names? It has those things because the dragon had those things. The dragon, the ancient serpent, this is Revelation's picture of Satan. Revelation 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads seven diadems. Now this beast, this is an image, an image of Satan. This kind of parallel figure, his agent, his assistant, in a sense almost his, his son. The agent of evil. And what does it symbolize? The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. All right, so this is not weirdness for the sake of weirdness. This is it's from the book of Daniel. Daniel was given a vision of these, various, these exact same animals. Okay, the, the leopard, the bear, the lion. And what did they represent? They represented 
various kingdoms and civilizations that would come and persecute the Israelites. The Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And now we have this kind of Frankenstein's monster, this amalgamation of the nations and the kingdoms come together to make this one super beast. And we ask, wait, what does he represent? He represents the, the nations, the political powers, the governmental structures that come together to persecute the people of the kingdom of God. That is the beast. State power as an agent of Satan. All right. And what is its great message? What is it, what is it declaring? Verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshipped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? All right. Who does this sound like? A mortal wound that was healed, one given authority and acting and worshipped. This is a corruption of Jesus Christ himself. That just as God gives his authority to Jesus, to the Son, and the Son displays his power in resurrection life, we have this counterfeit that the dragon gives his authority to this beast. And what does the beast do? The beast makes this forgery, this counterfeit mockery of Christ. And that he looks like he has, just like Jesus Christ, resurrected from apparent death. This is the Antichrist. The, the whole collective community, like the, the world's Antichrist throughout all time is represented in this beast. All of the Antichrists. All of those who seek to replace Christ and present themselves as the ultimate savior. Now, okay, so this, this wound thing. Why does, why does the beast have a wound? Well, think back. Think to the very beginning of the sun that would crush the serpent's head, Adam and Eve, or uh, Isaiah 27.1. In that day, the Lord, with his sword and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, the crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. All right, the work of Christ was to destroy the dragon and the beast, and upon his resurrection, he dwelt a, a mortal blow. That Christ in his resurrection was, was victorious over the Antichrist, over evil, over death, over chaos. But what, ever since, what has the, the beast proclaimed? That no, it, it's, it's not really a mortal wound and I, I am free from it. I've resurrected from it and I am still powerful. The Christ blow did not really destroy the powers of the world. And we hear that message. 
We see it. We see it around us that, like, that the world goes on independent of Christ. There will be no judgment, no, that the, the powers of the world are ever powerful. And I, I hear this, even from the mouths of, of Christians who are to look around the world and they believe the lie that the, the beast is winning, that the beast is alive, the beast is in control. And they say things like, well, like, no, it seems like the church is just receding. It seems like the, the world is winning. The darkness is everywhere. That is exactly what the beast wants us to believe and that wants us to proclaim that the beast is defeating the church, that the Antichrist has won. Now, as we carry on, we start to see a, a turn here. What is the real power of the beast? And where does it come from? Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its, opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell on earth. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation and tongue. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, why does the beast have power? He's able to speak because he was given a mouth. He's able to exercise authority. Why? Because he was allowed to exercise authority. For 42 months, remember, that's 3.5 years. That's half. Half of this fullness seven. It's not the full time. It is allowed to make war. It is given authority. And as much as this beast claims to have power and claims to have resurrected itself, the only reason that it is still around is because God in his sovereign hand has allowed it to exist. That yes, there is this great beast but it is on a chain, and who holds the chain but the sovereign Lord of the universe himself? And when we see the powers of the beast proclaimed, what should we see behind it? But the sovereign Lord who is allowing that beast to do the work that has been sovereignly ordained, but not to believe that it has real power, or that its power is ever comparable to the, the glory and power of Christ, to him in true resurrection glory, to him who sits on the throne and who has willed everything that has ever come to pass. No, our, our God knows whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Before the foundations of the earth, their name was written. And what do we see? This, this beast is terrible. It is ugly and horrible, but it cannot snatch you from the Lord's hand. It has no ultimate power. And whatever claims it makes, 
It cannot defeat us. We who are in Christ, who have found ourselves in him. So then what, what are we supposed to do with all this? What is the book's application for us? If anyone has an ear, let him hear this. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. What is the call? The call is to endure and have faith. That is over and against what we would want it to be, which is rule the government. Take power. Overthrow it. Attack it back. Use the kingdoms for the building of the kingdom of God. No. No, that's not what it says. And all right, we live in a very strange time. We live in a strange nation where it feels like there's this amalgamation that says, well, no, the, the nation, the state, the, the governments, they're pro-church and pro-Jesus and pro the, the power of the kingdom of God. All right. That's not the normal pattern. That's not the pattern that's presented in Revelation. And we are naive if we expect that to be the, what's really going on here. The kingdoms of the world do not give themselves over to the kingdom of God. The pattern is one of persecution and hostility. And if for a time they are not persecuting and hostile, we should bask in the abundant grace and blessing of God, not, not carry that with some kind of expectation. And likewise, we should understand that it very well may be temporary. And that when the time comes, it is not a time to fight. It is not a time to rebel. It will be a time to endure and to have faith that God is in control. And that if we are to be taken captive, captive to captivity, we will go. If we will be slain with the sword, we will be slain with the sword. But either way, Christ will be victorious. We know where we will go after that captivity. We know that that sword cannot destroy us. We will be with the one in white robes who triumphs over death, who is building for us a place that is his where the, the light of the glory of God is the only light that we need where evil cannot enter, where we have been washed and will stand and see him face to face. A call to endure and have faith. Now, that takes us to the second beast. The second beast, this time the beast that rises from the earth. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority on the, of the first beast in its presence, 
and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Once again, we are in the world of counterfeits. That Satan has the Antichrist, and now what does he bring into the picture? The anti-Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in Revelation, he is called the, the false prophet. Then I saw a beast rising out of the earth, had two horns, and spoke like a dragon. All right, so it, it seeks to have this, this semblance and, and resemblance towards the lamb with two horns seemingly innocent, seeming to fit in with the pictures of Christ. But what does it speak? It speaks the, the lies of the serpent, the Satan himself. And just like the Holy Spirit, what is this, this beast's role? And so the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit points towards Christ. And tells us to glorify Christ and honor Christ and believe in Christ and worship him. And in the same way, this second beast points all power and authority to the first beast. To worship the Antichrist. To make images of the Antichrist. To submit to him. To, to give in. To fear. And to subject ourselves to him. Now, how does this, how does this anti-spirit, how does, he, how does he speak to the people? He speaks by false teachers, false prophets, both in and outside of the church. You'll hear the, the whisperings all around us that, that speak on behalf of Satan, even as they claim to represent God. They will call us to worship idols. To worship prosperity and blessing. To, to worship our nation. And to live in our national identity as opposed to our spiritual one. They will call the church to embrace the sins of the day. And all their facets to, to call evil good and good evil. We see things like, like abortion or immorality and, and sexual perversions and then greed and injustice and on both sides to embrace evils that are condemned in Scripture but to, to accept them and allow them and, 
and push them aside. Wait, we get this, this vision so that we may be vigilant. So we may test all things and see through the lies and see through the, the deception of this second beast. But it's difficult because verse 13 It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by signs, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. All right, so what is it doing? It's doing like real miracles, miraculous things, things that are impossible, things that cannot be explained. We already saw these these false resurrections. Now we're seeing these these false prophets who, just like Elijah, they are calling fire down from heaven. We might think of of Pharaoh's sorcerers. They can turn water into blood. They can turn a staff into a snake. What's so special about all that? And so what is the, the, the test? The test is not how amazing the feat is, or seemingly impossible. All right, it's harder than that. There is real, real demonic spiritual power. There are going to be things like false healings and, and the claim to have been blessed and provided for by God in amazing ways, or victories that are seemingly impossible that are unexplainable, and we say, oh, it must be God. No, maybe not. False claims to authority and prophecy and knowledge. All right. In all of these things, though, it is not pointing towards Christ. It is pointing towards the Antichrist. It is pointing towards man. It is pointing towards self. It's pointing towards Satan. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast to be slain. There's a call to worship. All right, so you might think of Nebuchadnezzar and his golden statue, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This may be very literal. A call to, to worship the state, to worship the rulers and in the early church, Christian church, uh, it was very literal. So you really did worship Caesar. And there was, there was a call to come and, and proclaim allegiance to him. There were guilds that had uh, set times to, to come and worship Caesar. And it was very real that if you didn't, you are not allowed to trade. You are not allowed to, to participate in the culture because you had not paid homage to the god of that culture, the government. This is very real in that sense. You are an enemy of the state because you had not proclaimed your allegiance to the ruler of it. All right. Now, in some cultures... It can look just like that. There are dictators who demand uh, allegiance and bowing down. 
other, other cultures they have, and nations, they have state religions. And you are not a true citizen unless you believe the state religion. And where it's illegal to, to convert a citizen of that nation because the, the religion and the national identity have become molded into one. So for some, there is real terror here. There is power here. And to fail to bow down will mean persecution, will mean the fire, will mean the sword. Now, it's harder for us because I don't think in our culture we have the exact same thing. We don't have a national idolatry that we're called to to enter into to avoid a persecution. Uh, Now, we might. We might, though, still be called and, and may fall prey to worshiping the nation itself. All right, what do I mean? This is not God's country. It is not God's country. All right? We are not the wealthiest nation or the most powerful nation because God is more pleased with us or because we have done a better job following him or because we had a Christian foundation. That's a lie. It's, that's not true. To exalt ourselves and present ourselves as holy before God, we're never called to do that. Right? To the extent that we make these claims that, well, no, it's the impossible happened to make us exist, or right, that is exactly what they're talking about. That miraculous things happen to, to make us the nation that we are, or that God is always fighting on our side, that is foolishness. That is a lie. That would call us to give greater allegiance to this nation than than we ought to. There's no place for it. We may be thankful for the country that we have been given, but we do not divinize it. Amen? Amen? All right, so uh, what are we called to do? We are to be careful. We are to be wary. We are to test the prophets and the teachers and the spirits to see really where do they point. And that brings us to, to our last point. All right, this is our most famous passage in all of Revelation. We get to talk about the mark of the beast now. And 666, all right. All right. Let's let's read it again. All right. All right. Cause all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right. First thing. We have already seen a mark on foreheads in the book of Revelation. Where was it? Earlier, yeah. Good. Uh, 
earlier in the book. All right, so, uh, yeah, so what did God do? God seals believers with his own name that they might be protected from what? From the, from the judgment that he was bringing upon the world. That when they get, that they might be sealed until the final coming and they will not bear that second death. All right. Have you ever met a believer with God's name written across their forehead? All right. Did God fail to write it? All right. Was there a sign-up time when you were supposed to go and get it written on your forehead? No. Because it's spiritual. What's it saying? It's saying that you've been, you've been marked and you've been chosen by Christ and you are now united to him and you are part of the kingdom. Your allegiance lies there. All right. The mark of the beast is the same. It is a spiritual, invisible seal. And it does essentially the same thing. It marks the person as part of, not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of Satan. And it protects them. But not from the second death, but from the first death. It protects them from persecution and from suffering. And so what, what is the mark of the beast? All right, it's not a chip. It's not a tattoo. It's not an ID card. It's putting your faith in the beast. It's seeking to escape persecution and judgment of the world by aligning with the powers of the world. Just like our faith is in Christ, a day-by-day faith and reliance. It is the corruption of that. Faith and reliance and pursuit of life in the beast, in the power of the world, in setting ourselves against God in our autonomy, seeking life outside of Christ. As we do that, as someone does that, They start to look more and more like the beast that they serve. They have the same blasphemous names written across their foreheads. And this is reinforces also. uh, In the Old Testament, the Israelites, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to write the law. It says, write write the law on 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 your forehead and on your wrist. But instead, what does the unbeliever do? They write the the blasphemies and the lies of Satan upon their lives. They live according to them. They believe them. All right. And we already saw in a way that in that culture, the first century culture, yeah, if you didn't have that written across your forehead, if you did not participate in Caesar worship, you could not buy and sell. You could not work. You were persecuted. Can we stop, please? Stop looking for the sign of the beast everywhere or the mark of the beast everywhere. All right, it's not out there. It's in your very heart, in your attempts to escape persecution and suffering by aligning with the world. It is much more dangerous than an ID card. Amen? But I remind you, That same mark that will protect 
the unbeliever from suffering in this life, we'll also designate them as those who rightfully deserve the second death. They will not escape that judgment. In fact, they are, they are marking themselves for it. So then, what is the 666 problem? All right, so this is uh, commonly interpreted one way. This is commonly interpreted as what's called gematria. All right, what does gematria mean? This means uh, that numbers represent letters that make a name. All right, so it's like a six, six, six letters each time that makes a name. That's how it's been interpreted. All right, and you can use whatever you want. So you can use Hebrew, or you can use Latin, or you can use Greek, and you can come up with a lot of names. Conveniently, Caesar is with six letters, so they're like, oh, Caesar. And then like, well, Nero sort of fits if we change it and put it in the Latin, and then it has some extra letters, and then it can be him. And, uh, and it just starts to multiply. And thousands upon thousands of names have been given and debated and is, is this, is this the person that we are talking about? All right. Nowhere else in scripture are numbers used this way. And it doesn't seem to fit the symbolic way that numbers are used in the book of Revelation. And so uh, I think a better, a better way of understanding that has been proposed kind of fits with the rest of the book. Okay, what's the, what's the perfect number? Seven, all right. So what is six? Six is short. It has fallen short. It is corrupted. It is less. It is a counterfeit. It is a forgery. It is imperfection. Six, six, six. There's three of them. Satan, first beast, second beast. Just this mark of counterfeit. Seeking to, to draw away from the perfection, the Holy Trinity, 777, into the, the fake and the dead. So then, uh, you're going to see things that characterize this. We're, see, we're trying to say, this is calculate it. Calculate what, it, what this is. And so, that's a call to go out into the world and see sixes when you see them. And understand them as sixes. That these things are not pointing towards God. They're not pointing towards his glory. They're not about the kingdom of God. No, they're about the kingdom of man. They're seeking to glorify man. They're seeking to build up the self independent of God. And we're supposed to go out into the world and like see, see the lies and the counterfeits that seek to replace God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and have the wisdom to discern when we see them and not fall prey to the lies. That is what we're being called to do. 
No. Uh, how do people learn to spot counterfeits? You know what they do when they try to teach you? So like uh, a counterfeit $100 bill. Uh, my sister, she worked in a, a casino, which was kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> and she was like, she was a money counter. <laughs> All right. And a lot of money would go through. And so they had to do counterfeit training. All right. How do they do counterfeit training? Yeah, study the real thing. All right. So you look at the real thing. You hold it. You take it. You, you seek to understand it and what it fundamentally is. It's not to go out and be told what all the counterfeits are. It's to understand the real thing. And that's where, like, I call us to keep refining ourselves to understand, like, what is the gospel? What is God? What is his holiness really about? And we'll discern between things like, oh, like, calls to, to love ourselves versus to, to understand being loved by God. Or to seek to, to build ourselves up by works or by receiving them by grace in Christ. Or to find life here and now in all its blessings or to, to pursue life in the kingdom that has come and that is promised. Do you feel like you have that discernment? Do you know the things of God? Do you know what holiness really is? Do you know the, do you know the, the things that are given us in Christ? As we come to know those things, you'll fall less and less prey to the counterfeit, to the fake. All right, last point. All right, so we know that Satan counterfeits. In one sense, that is scary. It's scary that he is, he's masquerading as God in this world. All right, but in another sense, it, there's some hope there. Because it's, a, it's, an, it's admitting, in a sense, that God is really the best. And if Satan wants to have any kind of power or glory... He has to try to be like God. He has to try to represent the, the miracles of God himself. He tries to make himself powerful and majestic, and yet what does he end up becoming? A beast. This disgusting thing crawling out of the water. He doesn't do it. He cannot do it. And the best he can do is imitate the one who is truly glorious and truly beautiful and truly powerful. And it's a reminder to us that if we want to taste and experience the, the glory and beauty and majesty of God, if we want to have any part in that, it is not by replacing God and making ourselves God. Now, the only way to, to really reflect him is to submit to him, to love him and worship him, to gaze upon his beauty and to have it reflected on our own faces. 
to be unveiled before him and to bow down before him and be transformed in the image of Christ by grace. And that is where we have such promises, such blessings, that if you are in Christ, you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. And that these beasts, what are they doing? They're not going to destroy us. They cannot. Instead, they are conforming us to the image of Christ that we may share in his glory. That we have his same beauty, that we may have his same character. That though we carry about the death of Christ, we have life in us. A life that cannot be taken away. Who do you want to follow? Will you follow the beast? Or will you follow the Christ? The resurrected one. The one who stands to redeem us, all of our beastly qualities, and present us blameless before himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, We thank you that you are stronger than the enemies that are set against us. And Father, we are humbled to know that even they serve you, that they are under your sovereign hand. And Father, we ask that you would not let us be foolish to fall prey to their boasting, to their... uh, to their temptations, to their oppressions. Father, you are more powerful and you have worked in Christ and we ask that we would believe that you can deliver us from all persecution, from all death, that we do not need to submit to the world and its powers. Father, would you fill us with the Holy Spirit that we may have discernment? Would you help us to see through the things that imitate real life, but have no life in them. Father, would you, would you help us to submit to Christ in his real power and glory and beauty and not to the ways of the world? Thank you for your forgiveness for the ways we have. Thank you for the cross. Would we be resurrected with Christ even as we suffer or die with him? Pray in his name.